vergessenes Ach Stimme. Genau. Zwei Jahre. Mendel. Zwei Jahre. Nein, 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 nein. Bleib, bleib, bleib. Bei Nummer. Gewinn Tucker dein Platz, nein? That's a clip from the new Holocaust film called Shtetl, and you hear Canadian actor Saul Rubinek playing the role of an elderly rabbi in a fictional Eastern European Jewish village. The film is mostly in black and white. The dialogue is all in Yiddish. It's the language of love for Rubinek, his first language, spoken by his parents, who had survived the Holocaust thanks to a Polish family who hid them from the Nazis. Rubinek himself was born in a displaced persons camp in Germany in 1948. They all soon came to Canada, and it was family lore that Hitler was to blame for curtailing Rubinek's father's own career as a Yiddish theater actor, which made it even more of a reason for Rubinek to sign on and spend six months working in a specially built set in the forests north of Kiev on a film that shows the lives of the residents in the shtetl in one single day before the German invasion in the summer of 1941. The film opens this week at the Toronto Jewish Film Festival, and Rubinek will be in the theatre in Toronto to discuss it. He's played plenty of Jewish characters before in his nearly 50 years in show business, like the demolitions expert in the recent Amazon series about Nazi hunters. And he's played rabbis, too. But this film was even more emotional because he was doing it for his father. And I, I was very sad that my father, you know, it, it couldn't see me in this role speaking in Yiddish. That would have been... So he was kind of sitting on my shoulder. I'm Ellen Besner, and this is what Jewish Canada sounds like for Tuesday, June the 6th, 2023. Welcome to the CJN Daily, a podcast of the Canadian Jewish News, sponsored by Metropia. You may have heard about this film already. They finished filming it during the summer of 2021. But then Russia invaded Ukraine a few months later, and the film wasn't released right away. It's now making the rounds of the film festival circuit. It doesn't yet have a distributor for wide theatrical release. Actor Saul Rubinek joined me from his home in Los Angeles just ahead of his trip north. It's good to see you. We had you as our uh, guest back in November during the Zoom days of COVID when you workshopped your your personal play in Ottawa for Holocaust uh, Remembrance Day, Kristallnacht, I think it was. Have you been to Canada since our last uh, discussion at all? No, I've been maybe a couple of times. I mean, for one thing, I went back last August to shoot uh, Blackberry, which has just been released. We're here because Shtetl is getting its Canadian debut in the Toronto Jewish Film Festival. What are you going to uh, tell people about the film when you come you know, this is a, a film that was made six months before the Russian invasion, and uh, it's a very unusual film in that it's a single-shot film. It looks like it's one single shot. It's in black and white, mostly. It's, uh, as I said, Yiddish language, which was the first language I spoke on the streets of Montreal when I grew up there. And it's it's a one day in the life of uh, the shtetl life, which most people know only from watching Fiddler on the Roof, which is not really exactly correct about, in fact, it's quite misleading about what Shtetl life was like. In this in this movie, Eddie Walter, as a writer-director, created the kind of life that you would have come to expect in that, in the Shtetl life, there were thousands of them before the war all over Eastern Europe, of course, all destroyed. And not, not only Shtetls that were Yiddish, there were obviously little villages that were you know, Ukrainian or Polish or Romanian or whatever. Um, and they got along more or less. Um, 
But the life of the shtetl was complicated. There were very religious people. They were atheists. They were communists. They were Zionists. There were feminists. There were, and part of the life of that very complex life of the shtetl is depicted quite well, I think, in in this film. It takes place on one day in June in 1941, the day that the Germans broke their non-aggression treaty with Stalin and invaded Russia through Ukraine. So it's like the last day of the life of the shtetl. These people don't know it. It's not a spoiler alert. It is what it is. Uh, it's very, it's kind of important. It meant a lot to me because of, you know, the Yiddish language. My father was in the Yiddish theater uh, before the war broke out in Poland. And um, I'd never really had the opportunity to to speak the first language that I that I spoke as an actor. And there were people, there were two or three people on the set who were much more fluent than I was, but everybody else learned it phonetically. We had a quite a brilliant advisor. The lead actor was uh, himself from a Satmer Hasidic community. He had left that community to become an artist. Um, and our advisor also was from a Hasidic community in Brooklyn. So their Engl their Yiddish was at 100% of mine was at like 35%. Or, and so I, I was able to uh, bring back stuff. This particular film, partly because of the rise of anti-Semitism in the world, partly because of the concept of invasion, of course, that happened, we didn't know it would happen, of the Russians in Ukraine. So it's what's sitting like a cloud over at our world events. And seeing, seeing a movie like this in a group is a far more emotional experience. You said you were about 30, 35% with your Yiddish. How did you resurrect what you remembered and be able to recite in it? What is that difference between like doing it in English? You know, once you're acting, I mean, I worked on the character with the right with the writer director first. So we, he doesn't speak Yiddish. He, he wrote the whole thing in French. Then it was written in English. And then he had uh, our, our consultant um, translate it. So I worked with that consultant on the you know, the dialogue. And um, there were there was, I don't know, 25% of it, which I wouldn't have known how to really put into Yiddish. But then once I knew it, you know, it's it's just rehearsing. I mean, at that point, it, it just becomes part of the character. And it came back to me, of course, um, especially if you learn something in childhood. The advantage that I had uh, over the other people who had to learn it phonetically was that we were doing very long takes. So these are very long takes that are stitched together to make it look as if it's one shot, which is quite effective. But in a long take, you might get lost and not want to cut because you all this stuff has come before with all these people. And I was able to improvise a little bit uh, because I could speak Yiddish. So if I got lost a little bit, I was able to catch myself and I was able to, to recover, which actors who, of course, have learned this thing phonetically can't do. So there was a, a difference there. But, you know, really, once I was in it, once I was doing it, I was very comfortable. Uh, I was playing this role. Although, different from anything else I've done, and I've played rabbis before. I played, one was an early film in the 1980s that was a Canadian film called The Outside Chance of Maximilian Glick, which is a cool film, but the growing up of... But this little boy was about to have his bar mitzvah, and he's fallen in love with an un-Jewish girl, and what hullabaloo that that creates in his 1960s, I think, community. And I played a rabbi, who had, a Hasidic rabbi, that is hired by this small Saskatchewan community, Manitoba community, 
<laughs> but they're not expecting, they're expecting a rabbi that looks like a banker, but he ends up, he looks like a Hasidic Jew, so that really puts them off. This was a completely different person. This is not a Hasidic rabbi. He's just the rabbi. He's the rebbe of the village of the shtetl with tremendous responsibilities given the situation that he's in. So I've had an opportunity to explore different aspects of that character uh, in my life. And luckily, my father had grown up uh, with a diet, with a, uh, a very religious father, and he had gone to yeshiva, and he knew um, a lot about this. So when I was doing the other two films, I had my father as a resource. Plus, I was doing this in Ukraine. I mean, I'm an Eastern European Jew, so my forefathers, like many Eastern European Jews, don't just come from Poland. They come from that whole area. Uh, right. I wanted to ask you about that, how going back there and filming in Ukraine with the Babi Yar legacy and the whole uh, that whole invisible thing that people who are Jewish in your situation, but also descendants, always remember when they see these ghosts that other people wouldn't see. How did you navigate that? Well, you know, I, I spent a long time. First of all, I was in Ukraine before I had shot in Ukraine um, five years earlier acted and helped write a, a French children's film. So I knew the Ukrainian crew and I, I had lived in Kiev for about two or three months. I, I was there with my daughter at the time. So I knew a lot about, or a certain amount about Ukrainian um, social problems and their continuing fight for independence. I think that shtetl in its uniqueness, in its very specific, very specific take, becomes universal simply because it is just about people trying to survive, uh, all with different opinions. I mean, it's about a young man who, who escapes the shuttle life to try to be a filmmaker in Kiev in 1939, you know, and about him coming back to try to elope with the rabbi's daughter. And it's just a very human story, and 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 I think it, it relates to other cultures. So that's what's really important to me about being in Ukraine, you know, as I say, not the first time, but it brought... Uh, a feeling, dressing in those clothes, we built, the crew built a shtetl, actually survived uh, the Russian invasion, uh, even though the whole area is mine now, but it survived. That's a significant. The hand-painted synagogue in the, in the film is one of the very few that survives, uh, very few examples of a hand-painted synagogue, and I think it was consecrated by a Ukrainian rabbi. That's a really cool thing. I'm hoping that Zelensky, now that we know that it survived, will declare it a national museum, which was uh, a declared intention of his before the invasion. So it brought, it was a very easy role to play in a way because the atmosphere, the clothes, speaking Yiddish, uh, it was in some ways one of the easiest roles I'd, I'd ever done. It looks difficult, I guess, because I'm speaking Yiddish, and but it was um, a very profound experience before and afterwards. And during, I was just the character. It's a very meaningful experience. Go back to what you just said, please. You said that it survived. I remember reading that it did not survive. The shtetl set was destroyed in the fighting. Oh. So this is very news to me. I didn't know that. Yeah, we found out in January. They, the Ukrainian government cleared the airspace, I guess, for whatever, and sent a drone. I have the drone footage, and it's and it survived. But as I say, the area is mined. The Russians indiscriminately mined the area. Uh, unconscionable act. But uh, so it'll have they'll have to be. Some kind of funding ultimately to un, to 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 get rid of the mines in the area, so the place can be visited when when it's appropriate for that to happen. Many of the reviews say that it's amazing because it's all one shot. So, can you walk us through 
the, the magic and how that actually happened. Like you, I can't well, imagine that you don't mess up and have to stop and do it again, right? Well, did you see 1917? That's not one shot. That looks like one shot, right? I mean, it took several months to film. All, all that happens in a movie is you create, there's different ways of shooting a, a master shot, which is a, a shot, usually a wide shot that's not broken uh, by cut, by cutting into close-ups. Or, and that, that single shot um, with a group of people in it, with a moving camera, you can move in to a close-up or a two-shot or reverse angle as long as you've got um, a kind of steady cam, which they had. And so what you do is you spend a day rehearsing the part that you're going to do. Probably could be five minutes, could be eight minutes, could be longer. Basically, they they have designed the beginning of that shot to match with the end of the last shot and the end of this shot to match with the beginning of the next shot so that they can digitally manipulate the ends of the shot and the beginning of the shot so that it can look like, you know, it's it hasn't been cut anywhere. So we had two separate days where we shot, where we rehearsed with the camera and the cast each one of those shots. One was fairly simple because it was only two people in the scene. And the other one was much more complex because there were quite a lot of people in the scene. And you spend a day rehearsing it like you would a play. And once the scene is figured out by the actors and the director of how it's going to move, and how, then you enter, you bring the camera into it, and you start figuring out what the angles are going to be, where he, where he's back, where he's forward, where the camera's forward, where it's back. And so it's rehearsed very carefully. And then um, once the shots are created uh, in editing, uh, they they start to match the ends and the, the and the uh, beginnings of those shots with the other shots, so it looks like it's stitched together. That that's a technique that has been used um, once digital, once you could, once people started working digitally. There are other movies like this. Famously, Birdman, which won an Oscar, it was shot as a single shot film. And if you go back and look at Birdman or 1917, these are very big budget movies compared to our little movie, but they're all done that way, uh, so that there's a continuous flow. Now. The reason for it uh, is usually uh, creative. Sometimes it works, and sometimes it draws attention to the filmmaking. I think in our particular film, because it's a real time, except for a couple of flashbacks that he has, it's essentially a real time film. It gives a momentum and a life to the film that it might not otherwise have had. So it was a really interesting thing. The other thing that you may not know is that, and I don't remember the name of this book, forgive me, but the reason that film is S-H-T-T-L and not not S-H-T-E-T-L, he left the E out in honor of a French novel written about the Holocaust, where the uh, novelist, in commemoration to all those people who had been lost during the war, left out the letter E throughout the entire novel as as a em, emblem as a symbol of what's missing so in honor of that novel uh he left the e out of the title stone i guess that's pretty much all i have for the moment and uh we'll see you in person in toronto that's great thanks for talking to me about this and that's what jewish canada sounds like for this episode of the cjn daily sponsored by metropia integrity community quality and customer care 
Today's listener shout-out goes to Steve Pakin. He's the host of TV Ontario's The Agenda program. He wrote in to compliment us about our interview last week with Dennis Brott, the cellist and brother of the late Hamilton conductor Boris Brott. Steve, it's an honour to have you on board. And we'll end the show with a bit of a public service message on behalf of us here at the CJN Daily. You might have heard that Facebook and Meta are angry about the Canadian government's plan to start taxing social media companies for sharing news content from Canadian publishers. Ottawa passed legislation about this earlier this spring. It's called Bill C-18, but it hasn't come into effect yet. The Senate is still debating it. Meanwhile, as a pressure tactic, Facebook and Instagram have now started blocking the ability of some Canadian publishers, effective immediately, to publish our stories. So, if you normally get my episodes or other CJN stories on Facebook or Instagram, you might not be seeing them anymore. If you don't want to miss any of our stories, please subscribe to the free CJN newsletter, which sends you all our stories in your email inbox. Go to the cjn.ca slash newsletter and put in your email address. Thanks for your support and we'll talk to you tomorrow.